of all scripture is the inspired word of God, so it is all necessary. Every word that we have, uh, God gives to us uh, so that we might be thoroughly equipped. I have to tell you, there are certain passages like Psalm 22. When I hear that read, I think, why should I even speak afterwards? Right? How can, how can you improve upon God's word? And of course you can't, but he has still called us to preach, and so that's what I'm going to do this morning. So Paul writes to the Thessalonians these words, and I want to give you a little bit of background before we get into the text. And this is, I tend to do this no matter where I preach, but especially if you just take one particular passage to a church that hasn't been going through this particular book, it's like walking into the middle of a movie. You want to know what's been going on beforehand. And also, like uh, Will mentioned, I'm a Bible teacher, and I've been doing that for a couple of decades now, which is hard to believe. And so the teacher blood in me just loves to teach anyway, so you're going to have to bear with me on that. But this is a congregation that is young, and I don't mean just age, but I mean in terms of their faith. When Paul went to Thessalonica, sometimes it's called Thessalonica, um, on his second missionary journey, he did what he typically did. He preached the gospel. He would go to the synagogue first, typically preach there one or two Sabbaths, then get kicked out, preach to the Gentiles, and then a mob would form, and Paul would have to leave town. Kind of glad I don't have that ministry. And that's what happened in Thessalonica. And he was only able to stay there three or four weeks. So he plants a church. These are all new believers in Christ. Paul did the best that he could, and then he thought, and he was likely right, that it was best for him to get out of Dodge, so to speak, so that the heat would die down, so that the rest of the congregation might be better protected. But that really, really, really bothered Paul, because Paul had a love for the church. Even those churches like Corinth that annoyed him to no end, he still had a love for the church. And you can see, and we don't have time to go through all of this, and I'll I'll point to a reference a little bit later in the service, uh, where Paul was really struggling. Did he leave too soon? Should he have stayed and, and fought longer? And he was concerned because he knows persecution can still rear its ugly head. False teachers arise in every church. No matter where you go, you have to deal with that. And they're immature believers. And so he wrote this letter out of a concern that they might not really appreciate the love that Paul and the others have for the church in Thessalonica. And so again and again in this letter, he's assuring them that he loves them, that he cares for them, and he's commending the Thessalonians for their love, for their generosity. They have a reputation, even as a young church, throughout Macedonia, of being a generous church, a church that supports the needs for others. And as we get to the end of this letter, really verses 12 through 28 of chapter 5, Paul begins to wrap things up. And if you've ever uh, written anything, even if you've ever written a sermon or a lesson plan, wrapping it up is not always easy because I'll bet Paul would agree with me on this. You always think, could I have said something more? 
Am I leaving anything out? Of course, mostly with pastors, they say more than they need. Uh, I don't think that's the case for Paul, though. And so he's wrapping things up, these final instructions for the congregation. And in verses 12 and 13, I just want to point this out, where he says, we ask you brothers. So he's talking about the entire congregation. So imagine yourself, you're in Thessalonica, you're hearing this letter from Paul being read for the first time. You're a small gathering, uh, probably not too much different in size than what we are here in this room. You're hearing these words, and here's what Paul says. We ask you, brothers, and that's really brothers and sisters, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. So he says to the entire congregation, show respect and honor to those that God has appointed as your leaders, your elders. Perhaps they had some deacons as well. Uh, this is, again, a small church. So these are new leaders as well. Be patient with your leaders. Honor your leaders. Respect those that God has put in authority so that you can be at peace among yourselves. And then in our passage before us in verse 14, same audience. So he's still talking to all of you where he says, we urge you brothers to do the following. So same brothers, but he's turning their attention now from the respect and the honor and the position in which they should treat those in authority now to how do we deal with each other? How do we handle each other in the church? So you notice the, uh, the first point on the outline, everyone needs to serve, and I'm not going to belabor this point, but the point is everybody has a role to play in the church. We don't just leave this for the professionals. Please don't have the mindset, well, that's the pastor's job. That's what we pay him for. That's what the elders are supposed to do. Let them handle all of that. Actually, everybody that's a part of a congregation has a role to play. We're all part of the body of Christ. And you can see Paul's image that he writes to the Corinthians. Jesus is the head, and then we all play different roles in that body. And the problem sometimes, oftentimes, Everybody wants the important roles to play, or the seemingly more important roles. I want to be up front. Trust me, it's not as glorious as it sometimes looks. I envy those of you who can sit in the very back. That's where I would sit if I had my, uh, my druthers, where nobody's looking at me, and I can listen to what the preacher has to say and, of course, agree with him fully at all times, right? But everybody has a role to play. So please don't think that you just come and maybe you give to the, to the offerings and you say hello to a few people and you leave and that you've done your thing. Although I will argue there may be a place for that temporarily in a moment. But everybody needs to serve. And that should be, be obvious here in verse 14. We urge you, not just a few of you brothers, all of you to do the following. Now, our second point, everyone needs to be served. Now, listen to this description again, because here's what everybody's supposed to do in verse 14. We urge you, brothers, to do the following. Admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, and then to summarize, be patient with all three. 
here's what you're supposed to do. Now, I'm going to contend, and if this offends you, well, you don't have to invite me back. That's fine. I'm going to contend that every Christian in this room fits one of these three categories at some point. Doesn't mean you have to be any of these right now. Maybe you're not. Good. Enjoy that time. But at some point, you're going to fit into one of these three. Uh, One commentator said, these are the problem children of the congregation. I think that's actually a little too harsh. I'll say the first category, and then we're going to look at these specifically, the idol. I'll say those are the problem children. The other two are those Christians who are struggling in their walk with Christ. And so you notice when Paul says for all of us to do these things, notice that we're to treat these three categories a little bit different. So he starts with admonish the idol. He doesn't say encourage the idol. He doesn't say lift up the idol. He says admonish them. Now, who are these idol folks in the church? Another way we could look at this is those who are unruly, disorderly, or disruptive. This is actually a military term, and if you know anything about the Romans, they were big on military, and you march in formation. We have a lot of military in this community. And if you have somebody who's out of formation, what does that do for the rest? It can cause issues. We're supposed to be going this way, and we got one or two over here that are going this way, and here's this person going this way, and this guy's coming right at me. What in the world's going on? And that causes confusion and disruption in the church. Paul says admonish. It's kind of a harsh term. You may have to get in their face. Now, when I say that, be really careful that you have your information correct. Don't just start admonishing people if you don't really know what's going on. But at the same time, be aware of the needs of the church so that you can actually do this when necessary. Okay, again, this is not saying to the elders, admonish the idol, although the elders are supposed to do that. This is to everybody. You're supposed to be on the lookout. Not to be nosy, not to be nitpicky, not to every time you see something that somebody does that annoys you that you're calling them for it. Please don't do that because you're just as annoying as they are, right? We all have those issues. But those who are truly causing disruption in the church, you're supposed to admonish them. And why does Paul start with this group in this this listing of three? Likely because if the idle aren't dealt with, if those who aren't un, are, uh, those who are unruly and disruptive aren't dealt with, you're not going to be able to minister to the others, the faint-hearted and the weak and in fact it's going to make things worse for them because if you're a struggling christian or if you're new to the faith or maybe you're not a christian but you're visiting a church and you're wondering what this good news is all about and you're in the midst of a congregation that's at war with each other it's going to really make you wonder i heard about this peace and love stuff and i'm not seeing it here maybe what i heard was wrong. So this is a calling for all of us to deal with those who are causing issues in the church. It's not easy. 
You may not get uh, treated too kindly by the person or persons you admonish, and yet you're to do it nonetheless. But because these idle, the, 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 the thought that Paul has here is that those who are idle, and you know what idle means, you're just kind of in one position, you're not really doing a whole lot. It could refer to those who are not working, those who are taking advantage of the generosity of the church, and Paul actually deals with that in 2 Thessalonians in more detail. But likely what he's really focusing on is this. Those who are not just not doing anything, but those who are using their time to cause problems for others. Busybodies. You ever know any busybodies? You ever been a busybody? Right? Where we're constantly just worried about everything else going on without really focusing on our own heart and nitpicking and complaining and disrupting. Every church has this issue to deal with. Now, I, I know some of you that I don't know that your church well enough that any of you, I hope, can be offended by this, but I'm just going to be blunt here. If this is you, stop. Okay, stop right now. It's not going to get better. And if you're here just to complain and gripe and, you know, moan about every decision that's made, find another church. And guess what? You'll complain there as well because every church has its issue. But I will, without going into detail, I will just say I know this firsthand, that if the idol are not dealt with, things only get worse. And this is a responsibility, again, that every one of you has. Admonish the idol. Now, that's, that's the harder one to deal with in these, uh, these three categories. So that's all I'm going to say on that. Notice the second one. Encourage the faint-hearted. Now, doesn't this sound better? I'd rather encourage, although I'm really good at admonishing <laughs> to a fault, believe me. And encouraging can be a bit harder sometimes. But this idea of the faint-hearted, there's different ways you can translate this. This can be the disheartened. The King James says feeble-minded. That's a little too strong, I think, for our current understanding of the language. The New Living, which I don't use too often, but has the word timid. And that's very helpful. Literally, this can mean small of soul. This is why I said it is very likely that there are some, in fact, I'm almost positive there are some, we prayed for them this morning, that are probably feeling this way right now. Those who are disheartened in their faith. They're struggling. They're wanting to know, why are things happening in my life right now? I don't get it. I hear that God loves me. I hear that he has great things in store for me and all of that. And yet, look at where I am. Look what's happened to my family. I don't understand what the Lord is doing. This is where we're to encourage one another. And again, this means we have to know each other well enough to know that they need encouragement. I'm really good at putting on a uh, poker face. I've never played poker professionally, and I never will. 
I played it for fun a few times, not with money, so please don't judge me. Uh, but I'm good that if I've got the cards and I've got whatever the great hands are to have, I can keep a straight face. You cannot read me in that regard. You don't know if I'm happy or mad. Usually people think I'm mad just because I keep a straight face. But that's where we have to be willing, both introverts like myself and then you extroverts who have it really easy because everybody knows how you're feeling, right? But we have to be willing to step alongside each other, right? To rejoice with those who rejoice and to weep with those who weep, to bear one another's burdens. But this can get messy sometimes. This can take your time because sometimes these faint-hearted folks who love the Lord need a lot of encouragement. They might be calling you on a regular basis. They might be wanting to meet with you and they really don't want to hear what you have to say. They just want to get it off their chest. I've heard that many, many times from students and parishioners. And I'll get thanked at the end. Thank you so much. And I'll think, I didn't even do anything. I just sat here. You dumped everything on me, and then you left. But sometimes that's what people need. And we have to be willing to do that, to encourage each other. And we encourage each other by pointing each other to Christ. Right? Not to me. Well, I've got my life together, so let me give you some tips for how I do things. No. Look to Christ and what he has done for us lift each other up this great reference from isaiah 42 verse 3 a bruised reed he will not break and of course we see in the new testament jesus applying that to himself if jesus doesn't break bruised reeds and you can see what you know what a reed is but if you twist it too much it will break Jesus doesn't come along to those who are weak, to those who are faint-hearted, and kick them when they're down, and kick them again, and then break them. He does not do that. He encourages them. He lifts them up. He will not break them. So if he won't break them, how dare we break them? Encourage one another. Whatever it is that's going on that's causing uh, folks to be faint-hearted. And I will say this, it is not a sin to be faint-hearted. Don't beat yourself up over it. I've had a rough last year, and again, I'm not going to go into all of that. My family's had a hard last year. And there are plenty of times where we feel faint-hearted. It's not necessarily a sin. It's the Christian life. And we have to encourage each other and trust that God is going to bring something good out of this well what's the last help the weak help the weak now this one's a little trickier and the reason it's trickier is we don't know quite who Paul has in mind here because the weak could refer to those who are social outcasts to those who in our setting we have a different way of looking at things than the Roman Empire did of course uh, but to the lower class, to those who can't quite dress up the way we can when we go to church and put on our Sunday best, whatever that's going to look like. Not everybody can do that. 
Some aren't going to look or sound or sometimes even smell like we do. That could be who Paul is talking about, and it would make sense. It could also mean those who are weak uh, in their faith. But I think that he's already dealt with that in the faint-hearted. Another possibility, and I think it might be this one, and I get this from uh, Pastor Richard Phillips. He says this term probably applies to those who find it difficult to abandon sin and resist worldly pressures. And again, I've told you, this is a young church that Paul is addressing. And if you know anything about the morals of the Greco-Roman Empire at that time, uh, we're, we're trying to get there as a culture. We're close. That's how bad it was in the Roman Empire. And to have a lifestyle like that where just about anything goes and you can indulge any pleasure of the flesh that you want and suddenly you're confessing Christ as your Lord and Savior and you're hearing, oh, I can't live that way anymore. I can't just do whatever I want anymore. That's not easy. I'm an old guy. Now, some of you disagree with that. Some of you agree with that. It's hard as a 50-whatever-it-is-I-am-year-old to put away the sinful temptations of the flesh. It's hard. And I've been a Christian all my life. Think of how hard it would be for a brand-new believer who's used to live in a certain way and suddenly they're not supposed to anymore. It is going to be a struggle. And so I think that's likely what Paul has in mind that we're to help the weak, to help those who give in to that sin again and need somebody to point them to their need to repent. Yes, that's primary, but also to say, the Lord's going to get you through this. We're going to be here for you. Put your trust and your hope in the Lord. And that's where you can point them to plenty of Old Testament passages or 1 Corinthians 10 where Paul does this. And he says, all of these sins and these examples that the Israelites uh, fell into, those were examples for us to look at. Don't fall into sexual immorality. Don't fall into idolatry. Don't fall into rebellion. Because look at what the results are. But don't stop there. Because that's the easy part. Hey, you're sinning. Stop. We can all do that. Point them to Jesus. Remind them of the hope that they have. They are a new creation in Christ. And sanctification is a tough work. It's a big fancy term we uh, reformed Christians like to use, right? But that's our growth in godliness. And it is a process. It is a work that won't be done until we're glorified. So don't ever think that you've reached it. Oh, it's good to be fully sanctified. <laughs> I'm so sorry for the rest of you who aren't. You're not going to get there. And if you think you're there, uh, take another good look in the mirror. Okay, you're not there. Only Christ reached that. So help those who are struggling with sin. Now, all three of these, like I said, can be difficult to deal with. And that's why Paul ends this section with be patient with them all. That's a rough one. Be patient patient be willing to have your time used a lot to help those who are idle or who are weak-hearted or who are 
or excuse me, faint-hearted or who are weak, be patient with them. Just as the Lord is patient with each one of us. Right? The Lord is long-suffering. Slow to anger. Quick to forgive. And if that describes God, should that not then describe us in terms of how we interact with each other? Unless we think that Paul was this super saint, right, that didn't struggle with all of these, listen to what Paul does in chapter 3 of this book. As I mentioned, Paul wrote this letter in part because he was really, really, really concerned about the well-being of this church. And if you look at chapter 3, verse 1, Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish you and exhort you in your faith so that no one be moved by these afflictions. So Paul is saying, as we left Thessalonica and as he moved on to Berea and then to Athens, and then he was going to go to Corinth after that, it was really, really, really bothering him, not knowing how things were going back in Thessalonica. He was likely losing sleep. He was faint-hearted. He needed encouragement. And so he sent Timothy. And in verse 5, again, it says, For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith. So he's letting the church know that he's like they are. He can be faint-hearted as well. Now here's the good news. Verse 6, But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your love and faith and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to, to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. I could just envision Paul when he received this report from Timothy. Timothy, the big smile on his face. Good news, Paul. Things are going well in Thessalonica. That that weight just went off of Paul's shoulders. That he was comforted. That's what the church is supposed to do. Comfort one another. Be patient with each other. So everyone needs to serve Everyone needs to be served. But we come to our last point. Everyone needs to do good to one another. And this is not just a generic, be good people. This is how we're supposed to treat each other. And this is a hard one. Because notice how Paul starts in verse 15. He starts with a negative. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil. So to summarize, if somebody slanders your name, don't slander them back. If somebody gossips about you, don't gossip back. Or as Jesus would say, right? Somebody slaps you in the face, don't slap them back. Go the extra mile. Don't repay evil for evil. Again, why not? It's so easy to do. And admit it, even if you won't hear Sometimes it feels good to do it, right? They did it to you. They deserve it. They're getting what's coming to them. Do we want what's coming to us from the Lord? I don't. I want his mercy. I want his grace. 
And if that's true for me, then again, that's how we're supposed to treat others. How did Jesus treat us when we were yet enemies? Christ Jesus died for us. Don't repay anyone evil for evil. That's what you did in Roman culture. Somebody does something bad to you, you do it twice as bad back. That's how you handle things. Paul says that's not how we do things in the body of Christ. And instead, always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Notice what Paul does here. He says one another, so that's all of us in the, in the church. And then he says to everyone, that's everybody out there. All right, so not just fellow believers that we're supposed to do good to, but unbelievers on the outside of the church. Do good to one another and to everyone. One commentator rightfully points this out, and I think this is really, really obvious. Only the grace of God can enable us to do this. It's certainly not in my strength. I can be good. Here's my spiritual strength. I can be good to people who are good to me. Man, I got that down. I'm really proud of that. Not. But doing good to those who aren't, that's tough. Not wanting to say things about politicians on social media. Oh, there are so many things I want to say. But I'm not supposed to. I try my best not to. And that's Paul's point here. Don't repay evil for evil. Always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. So this is a responsibility, and I want to urge you as a congregation to seek ways that you can minister to one another. Not with you as the example for everybody else to follow, but pointing each of us, whether we're struggling with being idle or we're faint-hearted or we're weak, Seek ways that you can minister to each other. Point each other to Christ. And here's the good news in all of this. We're all going to fall short of doing this, of course. But we have a Savior who has already paid the price for our sins. He will forgive us. He will restore us. And then when we fall short, we confess And we ask that the Spirit would enable us, equip us, empower us to minister to one another, not so we can look good, but so that this body here, the body in Thessalonica, can better worship the one true and living God. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we again... Uh, Hear your word. We do recognize, Lord, that we fall short. But we thank you, Lord, that you are faithful, that you will build your church, that you have not given us this word just to, uh, to make us feel bad for our failings, but to encourage us to see that you will enable us to do these things, not in our own strength, but through the strength of the Holy Spirit, that gift given to us. Father, I pray for this church again that this would be a congregation that indeed seeks to minister to one another in spirit and in truth and to worship you in spirit 
and in truth. Bless us as we conclude this service. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.